On today's episode, I speak with Chris Daramont. Chris is an associate professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Victoria, as well as science director for the Raincoast Conservation Foundation. We have a wide-ranging and in-depth conversation about his coinciding research and advocacy work, working with Indigenous nations on conservation issues in British Columbia, the science and politics of science-based wildlife or conservation management, and how Chris's experiences as a hunter inform his research and advocacy work. Please enjoy the episode, and thank you for listening. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Chris Daramond, the Raincoast Chair of Applied Conservation Science, Department of Geography, University of Victoria, and also Science Director for the Raincoast Conservation Foundation. Um, how did you get into either of those positions, or are they kind of uh, are they kind of conjoining positions or coinciding positions? These roles are linked in that I've been uh, essentially a rain coaster for, boy, about half my life now. Uh, as an undergraduate um, student, I became very interested in, in the science-based nonprofit that's based uh, regionally on the west coast of British Columbia and that has worked with Indigenous nations there since its inception. Um, so I've been a rain coaster for more than 20 years, I suppose, and uh, as I worked my way through uh, academic positions uh, and eventually landed a, a professorship, um, I kept the rain coast by my side, and I'm glad I did. How did you get into academia then? Or more specifically, uh, what what part of that, or what, what interested you in academia and, and drew you to... Uh, Drew you to kind of merge the with the the raincoast work. Well, I've I've always been in, uh, interested in in science and specifically nature, how it works, and and uh, especially how we as humans might affect uh, nature. And so I was particularly drawn into applied work, work that um, relates to management, and I think of that not so much in terms of managing wildlife or ecosystems, but, but increasingly I think about it as managing ourselves, managing our own human behavior, um, because ultimately that's what has the influence and, and impacts on, on natural systems. And in terms of your research, did that develop in an undergrad context or kind of trying to get to how you became a, an associate professor. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, uh, there's a couple different ways one can influence um, change on the ground. And, and one is through campaigning and, and advocacy, and one is through the supply of relevant information to, to policymakers. And, and those two worlds are often kind of divorced or, or don't talk to one another all that often. The, the kind of model that I grew into, and I think as a function of, of being with Rain Coast, a nonprofit for so, so long, is that uh, I came to the conclusion that I ought to be both. I ought to be both uh, 
an applied scientist who does good work and submits it for evaluation by peers, um, but my job should go beyond simply dropping off a paper on kind of a, like an imaginary loading dock and hoping that policymakers or the public will pick it up and, and read that paper um, from that loading dock. So, uh, and one way to get, go beyond that is to practice what I like to think about as informed advocacy. So it's advocacy to be sure and to be explicit and, and upfront with my values and, and what I do. Um, but I like to also think that this advocacy is, is informed by uh, the best available science, and, and sometimes that's the science that that my lab and my graduate students and postdocs and I produce. So, in terms of a specific research focus, how would if someone were to say give ask you for the elevator pitch, and we don't have to have an elevator pitch because there's ton, sure. tons of time, uh, sure. or time forever how long you want to talk for uh, <laughs> uh what what how would you describe the, the the type of specific research that you do well our the the name of our lab really sums it up it's applied conservation science so unlike other scientists we don't specialize in any one academic concept or methodology for example predator prey interactions or um uh, dietary studies or something of that ilk. Rather, we, we kind of bring what we feel is the best tool to the table, uh, best method to address a question that's of either high importance or high urgency or both. And often we define uh, those terms in the context of what the Indigenous governments with which we work um, define them. Um, so I made a decision very early in my career that I would not work with or very unlikely uh, to work with provincial or federal uh, levels of government that, that I would um, focus my energy and my time um, and investments, I, I suppose, in, in working with Indigenous governments. Um, and the specific systems in which we work are systems that are often important to these governments, and uh, that is wildlife uh, and fisheries, and I guess uh, forestry management to a lesser extent. Interesting. So um, would you say that's a unique approach uh, to your lab to focus working, uh, to focus working with, uh, in, uh, with indigenous uh, governance uh, groups or organizations? Yeah, I, I don't know of any other academic group, at least in this part of the world. I, sus I suspect there are um, labs r likely run by Indigenous people in other places in Canada or perhaps New Zealand and Australia that have a similar focus on, on working with Indigenous governments. But I, I can't think of one up front and, and largely how we developed as a lab and I developed personally um, you know, I can trace back to my time as a graduate student. Uh, I worked in a place um, out of a village and across a territory belonging to the Heltzik people. That's about halfway up the West Coast. Um, and I didn't interact with the province, even though in, under the province's um, perspective, wildlife falls under their jurisdiction. I, 
rather I kind of learned early that that not only wildlife but fisheries in Heltic territory were under Heltic jurisdiction. Um, this was sort of exciting and at that time rather rarely articulated sentiment. This is long before I don't know more and the concepts of resurgence and whatnot. This was the early 2000s. Um, I mean, this was clear and, and resolute convictions from um, both elected leadership and hereditary leadership uh, in the Heltic Nation. Um, but in terms of, of a broader society and even within academia being aware uh, or engaged with that sort of perspective, um, it was kind of new ground. and. It was really rich and valuable, and you know, my as people do when they work in in indigenous territories, often they find this wonderful interaction between their personal life and their professional life. Mm -hmm. In that, um, you know, you get to know people with whom you work, and those relationships um, are pretty important. Um, so that's where we started and here we are 20 years later and um, that's where we still are um, and it's really exciting in that although on the west coast nations never gave up their authority to manage resources um, it was taken from them essentially and what's happening now is really exciting because they're taking back that authority using um, often using uh, policy levers that are colonial in, in their design um, and doing great things with those policy levers and at the same time resurrecting some of uh, their own indigenous laws and articulating them or codifying them a little more um, uh, aggressively and outward facing uh, to the province, the feds, and then I guess the larger society. And so it's, it's exciting to be um, witness and in some cases a participant in these um, management um, uh, programs. So in terms of the, the, the lab uh, and, mm -hmm. and then the connection to uh, Rain Coast and and to uh, indigenous uh, governance, and um, I'm not really sure if I have a question. <laughs> it's it's just because it's kind of, sure. it's, a, it's a very interesting it's a very interesting arrangement of of like groups that perhaps haven't historically worked together or worked mm -hmm. together that well. Sure. And then, sure. as you mentioned as well, that uh, you, that you were interested in working with indigenous gov governance over conservation, or uh, for lack of a better word, wildlife, as opposed to provincial or federal bodies correct, um, correct. Yep. so I guess I guess the question that maybe I'm searching for is does does that does that approach shape um, your like what it is you w want to research and how and or how how you present that research uh, yeah yeah and, and not yeah. in a not in an overly um, not in an over like I'm not trying to suggest that there's bias because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm certain sure. I'm, well, I, I know of people that are in the, because right, I've heard them on different podcasts 
uh, suggest that they needed you needed to invite you out on a bear hunt or something. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like, I'm not, I'm not suggesting bias like that because sure. uh, I mean, everything sure. has bias. That's not a, sure. that's really not a record, like a meaningful recognition. So it's just sure. more, how do, how do the, how does all this interplay, um, kind sure. of shape how you'd want to, pre- or how you do sure. present your research, or maybe it doesn't, sure. maybe it, it just fits. Sure. Yep, no problem. Uh, so your question kind of has two parts. Um, you know, how does working with Indigenous uh, nations and communities shape our questions uh, for the first question? And I guess the second one had uh, sort of like, uh, how does that influence our results and, and how we discuss them and so on? So as far as Much how, better said than I did. <laughs> no, well, doing my best. Um <laughs> So as, as far as how we shape our questions, research questions in partnership with nations, is that we find that sweet spot between a question that, um, or, or the, the field of questions or the scope of questions that a community is interested in asking and, ans- and having answered, and uh, overlaying that sphere with um, what we're interested in doing conceptually, too, as academics. Um, I mean, we want to be as applied as possible, but we also want to do science that, that appeals to us intellectually and, and will appeal to academic peers in, in the literature um, to which we feel some sort of responsibility to, to, to publish in. Um, so we find that sweet spot, and we have ideally open, transparent, multiple... Um, conversations to identify that sweet spot in in terms of serving both the interests of the nation and the interests of us as academics. As far as how working with Indigenous communities and often on very controversial files, uh, for example, the grizzly bear trophy hunt or forestry policy, um, I would say that uh, the results or the outcomes of that research um, really depend on um, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, like any research and especially contentious subject matter, uh, it's uh, our responsibility and a benefit to subject that to peer review. So we try to answer questions uh, that's of interest in the, to the nation. We write a paper about that process and the results. We submit it to a journal that independently asks reviewers to assess the quality of that work. Um, and that keeps you know our potential biases in check. It, uh, ideally ensures that the, the work we're doing is rigorous and reliable. Um, and then should it pass peer review, this um, gives it, of course, a, a sense of authority um, that can be really useful for, for nations and, and their representatives to um, uh, point to as, as perhaps evidence or a body of knowledge that informs their decisions as resource managers or, for example, informs their negotiations with other levels of government or perhaps informs their um, legal uh, actions um, directed at industry or other levels of government uh, that might be um, 
treating them or their territory or wildlife or, or fisheries unjustly. Interesting. Uh, in terms of, in terms of kind of the, the, the science based or the applied science. And again, mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in applied science, nor uh, particularly uh, conservation sure. science, but my quite, my question is, is a little bit more political in, in the sense of uh, when there's conservation controversies or wildlife management or population controversies, uh, yeah. and you had referenced it like the grizzly bear hunt in sure. BC or, uh-huh. or any sort of large uh, or charismatic predator or, yeah. um, yep. and then, and a lot of times, uh, like the, the phrase science-based management or, or just even the word science is kind of just tossed out there as the, yep. like the ideal yep. or the goal for the decision making. Sure. So, sure. uh, the, 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 the question isn't, uh, isn't necessarily to pull that apart, but it's more, how, how do you, how do you, or if you've had to, and maybe you don't, maybe you don't worry about that because it's, it can be a side distraction to what actually has to happen but have you had to figure out ways uh to kind of i mean i guess the easiest question is what happens when two two groups and i uh, hypothetically come together saying that their science is the right science like like how do you kind of navigate if when that if or when that happens or if it has happened right right uh it happens very commonly um (laughs) of course in that you know and that's both the blessing and, and curse of, of science in that um, scientists like to debate one another. <laughs> um, uncertainty is everywhere in terms of no one ever answers a question perfectly. And that uncertainty can be exploited um, by either side, you know, irresponsibly, whether it be for um, advocating for change that isn't really required or um, defending the position of of the status quo. So um, that's actually really common. Um, What we're increasingly interested in, this transcends working with any one nation or any one system like the Grizzly Bear Trophy Hunt. What we're interested in lately is across all systems of wildlife in particular, we are interested in assessing um, the veracity of of what you referred to as essentially science-based management claims. So often we have levels of government, the the province and the and the feds saying, "Here's our scientific management plan," um, and our experience in drilling deeply into management plans for specific wildlife in which we've been very interested, like grizzly bears, has revealed to us that that these claims made by governments of, of a scientific basis for their um, management um, have been um, not very well supported when you have that close inspection. So we, we recently scaled up um, our initial work on that and and assessed um, management plans for every hunted species, oh, wow. uh, mam- mammals that is, across North America. 
um, I think 669 systems, if I remember correctly. So a system, yeah, it's a, it was a big ambitious work. And, and like by system, I mean, for example, moose in Alaska would comprise a system. Right. Or, um, uh, you know, white-tailed deer in British Columbia, or uh, I believe even alligators in, in a state in the southeastern United States. So across these four, or sorry, across these almost 700 systems, we looked for um, evidence of four what we call hallmarks of science-based management, hallmarks we considered to be sort of the essential foundations for any management plan that would call itself science-based. So we look for, number one, objectives. Was there an objective? What does the state or province want to do with moose in Alaska or deer in British Columbia? Do we want to increase populations, keep them stable? Um, something. So we just looked for an objective or objective stated in these wildlife management plans. And we thought that objectives were important because this gives us a way to measure the performance of the management plan over time. Were they meeting, exceeding, or not meeting their um, objectives? So that was a key hallmark that we look for. Um, sadly, we find very little evidence that they, um, that managers and those that write management plans for hunted species actually state their objectives. So that was, hmm. that was concerning. The second hallmark we, we look for is evidence. Is there evidence in the, in, this could be broadly applied. In fact, it had several different criteria. Um, did they bring evidence to the table and to the, specifically to the management um, plan? Was there population estimates? Any estimates of trend? Is, is the population of moose in Alaska increasing or decreasing in the different you know, smaller regions, et cetera. So we look for evidence. And, and their management plans do a, a little better job, but often, you know, major pieces of evidence that you might expect in management plans um, were lacking. Uh, the third hallmark we, hallmark we looked for is um, um, independent review. And by that, we meant review by peers. And we thought this was going to be a very important criterion because basically the research model or, or scientific model depends on other scientists, ideally independent scientists, vetting or, or uh, assessing the quality of your work. And here we found some very disturbing results, and that was that I, I think somewhere around 6% of management plans only um, are subject to any sort of review. Oh, wow. So we, this we, yeah, this we find disturbing that this key hallmark of a scientific approach um, was in fact missing um, from management plans. And actually when we... Um, did a little analysis to try to see what factors predict some other hallmarks and criteria of how good a management plan is. And we pulled out of that list 
this one parameter or this one variable of, of independent review and used it as a predictor, um, we found that those plans that were actually peer-reviewed tend to score much higher on on these other measures. And that is to say peer-reviewed plans were better plans. <laughs> and that was, that was a significant result and sort of underlines how important um, uh, peer review is and how potentially troubling um, the, its absence is. Um, so that's three out of four and probably the, the three most important hallmarks that we, that we looked at in assessing the, the claims that we hear from governments all the time that, you know, this management plan or this hunting plan for this species is science-based. Um, so our hope for that is, and it looks like there has been plenty of it, is to start a conversation um, among scientists, academics, and, and crossing that often large divide between scientists and academics and 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 managers, wildlife managers. And so we created this template, this hallmarks of science template um, to guide the development of future management plans that, that we think is a win-win that, you know, the public who, at least in the colonial context of, of law, who own these uh, quote-unquote um, public resources, they will get better value for their for their tax money knowing that you know when a government says things are or management plans are are um science-based that they actually are and we think the benefits might also flow to to managers and 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 levels of government who will be able to offer um management plans that are defensible and can avoid some of the mm, social, legal, and other costs associated with with offering poor management plans. Very interesting. Has this study, I think it's been published, right? Yep, that's right. It was published last month or perhaps yeah, April or, or maybe March in, in a new journal from the science um, family called Science Advances. Okay. I'll have to check that out more thoroughly. <laughs> mm, sure. Um, as I'm, as anyone who knows me, I'm loath to do, I tend to ask questions that are probably beyond the, uh, the, right. the remit of, of the study that you did. Sure. Um, but sure. it was interesting when you said there were 600 plus management plans that you looked mm -hmm. at. And so uh, mm -hmm. what kind of cued me there was thinking about um, because just, just when you're like, when people use the word species or population or even wildlife, right. they're very, they're meant to be very broad terms. And that has, that, that does have a, a discursive effect. But then when you look at it, there are 600 plus different plans. And so uh, maybe just a, a comment and you don't obviously have to, but did you notice uh, in reviewing or, per, or perhaps if the people who were going through it, like any commonalities on how the other creatures were referred to like how their existences were like is it is it are they specifically referred in kind of the population like the real kind of hard management oh, terminology yeah. as oh, a, yeah. as opposed to having their own 
not necessarily independent existences, like in a liberal human sense, but a, but rather right. as a as opposed to an, another creature that has its, you know, its right. its inherent value because it exists. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good, good question. Um, you know, the truth is, I only looked at you know a handful of these, and we had um, dedicated research assistants doing most of the the heavy lifting. But I know from reading these sort of plans that that um, the language used and the values expressed by provincial and state governments are more the utilitarian that in their perspective and that, you know, these, these animals form a population, we manage populations uh, largely for the benefit of, of, you know, I'm, I'm, editorializing here yeah. but you know <laughs> white males to kill um and and you know the the idea that to ascribe them any um intrinsic value or comment on you know animals having their own agency um is is not really a part of the the you know typical western science management paradigm so we can contrast that sort of language and, and I guess, perspective with, with a kind of a neat word that I heard in Klaukwit territory, which is West Coast Vancouver Island, includes the tourist town Tofino, and it was shared by um, Giselle Martin, uh, with whom I, I taught and others uh, a field school uh, through the University of Victoria. And uh, the Klaukwit their term for wildlife uh, is they don't have one. What instead they use, uh, because it, in Giselle's words, it kind of others the the animals and and separates them from humans. Um, and she shared the closest word that she has for for wildlife or animals is is a word that that is pronounced something like teachmas. And, and that means sort of all life or the life around us of which we are part. And and I thought that was a really cool way to look at it, and, and especially in the context and in her view and, and views from other, at least West Coast um, Indigenous knowledge holders um, that I have spoken with and, and work with, um, the idea of anything wild, whether it be an animal or a landscape, um, has has the effect of um, removing the context from peoples, and especially indigenous peoples, and that the classic example is environmentalists will, will commonly refer to places um, as wild, when in fact, if you, you know, look at some of the cedar trees that have been modified over thousands of years or excuse me hundreds of years particular trees or thousands of years particular forests or you run your hand through some um, stones on some beaches and you encounter artifacts or shell middens that that speak of thousands of years of of occupancy and use of the landscape and interaction with plants and animals and even the geology um, that no place is, is truly wild, um, and and in the con connotation of of being unaffected by humans. Um, so I, I I share that example because it it contrasts 
so much with um, the kind of util utilitarian language about wildlife that, that, that Western managers tend to use. Yeah, and even uh, if I can editorialize a little, even the phrase, and I, and, and I don't, again, just uh, perhaps going off of, even the, the like I kind of cringe sometimes when I hear people just uh, utter science-based management because it kind of, it, it, it evokes a history that there was no uh, interaction prior right. prior to right. the intervention of quote yeah. unquote science. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, 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 to me, it, it creates a, a difficult history and um, it does and it not, does. not, a, not in a, not in a way that's problematic to that, that difficult history has to be resolved, but the difficult history, because it kind of ignores the actual history that needs to right. be addressed and right. all the consequences yeah, right. of that, of that colonial yeah. encounter. Yeah, that's right. And and even worse, sometimes the language and, and some of the the um, rah-rah sort of unbridled support for the Western management, well, at least in the context of wildlife, it does a little damage. And I'm thinking particularly of the, the so-called North American model of wildlife <laughs> conservation. Um, that it's a model that, you know, its proponents argue is responsible for saving wildlife across North America. And for them, the history starts, their timeline, their narrative starts um, when, you know, they don't use this word, but settlers came across North America and, and wiped out a lot of big mammals on their way when, you know, sort of unbridled um, exploitation and there was a market for wild meats um, and we lost some some big and, and small animals from huge parts of the range um, owing to not only development but specifically and they speak about um, unregulated hunting and they said we came along as you know the the prudent science-based managers and said we got to set up something here we removed the, the market hunting so we remove the commercial aspect and and look at all the wonderful success that has brought across North America and and indeed you know when when commercialized hunting ended in North America that that absolutely did help wildlife populations um, but the, the the failure in their model is is not recognizing that that you know the narrative, the timeline starts really much before, thousands of years before the 1800s when, when their model starts and that, as you said, people were in exploiting, to be sure, and but interacting and co-evolving and, and managing each other and managing their, their own behavior um, with respect to hunting and, and you know, the lion's share of the evidence suggests that, that this was a, these were sustainable practices that were, you know, interrupted, as you hint at, you know, quite violently and abruptly by, by settlers doing a number, not only, you know, a genocidal number, not only on people, um, but also um, vastly over-exploiting wildlife. Indeed, and I, I mean, even the, uh, I, I mean, part of part of the purpose of, that, like, motivated me to do the podcast. If I can riff on that just for a second, was mm -hmm. 
was that I was I was hearing a lot of uh, uh, very what I would consider well-meaning and certain certainly well thought out uh, hunters uh, talk about the North American model, yeah. and and but kind of but kind of still but kind of being cheerleaders for it without necessarily exactly. re- reflecting on the history. And so part of this yeah. part of my idea was to try to not was to uh, maybe to kind of do similarly what you were doing. Uh, is to try yeah. to create a at least a space for a dialogue because yeah. because I do I do feel that there are um, you know there are uh, particularly American uh, male white male hunters who are who, who are me- who who are who are sincere in their uh, in their beliefs about uh, protecting and enhancing right. and flourishing um, they're they're just some and and it's not necessarily for me it's not necessarily even uh, like a, a a specific creature-based policy sure, or, sure. or the, again, the science-based yeah. management. Um, yeah. It, yeah. it, a lot of it actually has to do it more. It's more the land policy that concerns me. Oh, I see. And I, uh, see. And I mean, yeah. I think part of it comes from, because right now uh, there's a big push for, to recognize the value of public lands, particularly right, right, in the right. United States. And right. I mean, I, I find that to be, you know, I'm, I'm predisposed to protecting or to maintaining the status quo of public lands versus sure. pure privatization and selling yeah, off and selling yeah. off to uh, whatever person happens to walk into yeah. the White House that day and say, "I have a great right. plan for this piece of land." Right, um, right, right. But but that but public but I mean the the limit of that story as well is that public lands are just it's just pure seizure and expulsion. Yeah, like right. the like there's just no yeah. way there's no way around that history. No. no. Um, and so that's where I've kind of found my yeah. limits with, as I yeah. said, people who I think are well-meaning and, and yeah. are historically accurate to a point. <laughs> yeah, I agreed. I agreed. And, and, and I'll echo your, your, um, uh, statement or regarding the sincerity and, and efforts and even accomplishments of, you know, proponents of the North American wildlife model. And even those that may not you know, be as cheerleaders, but be, you know, um, rank and file, you know, uh, fish and wildlife club members that absolutely they, they have a lot in common um, with, with me, or I have a lot in common with them in terms of a focus on, on, on habitat and, uh, and, and uh, protection from, you know, uh, factors that that drive populations down, whether it be non-native species or disease or climate change, we have so much in common. Um, but I agree with you in that um, a broader recognition of you know who owns or or ought to steward those landscapes um, because that recognizes a longer historical continuity of management by indigenous peoples and. Also, and perhaps these things aren't too far apart, even though they seem like they are. I also um, question the um, what I refer to as belief systems in that uh, often proponents of the North American wildlife model believe that if a wildlife manager tells us, you know, their their wildlife management plan is science based, well, then it is. And I think we have to be um, 
more careful in scrutinizing those um, claims because often if we dig a little deeper, we find evidence of what is called agency capture. And essentially it's those um, uh, those who want to exploit a system, in this case wildlife, um, capture the interests of policymakers to help shape policy that benefits them as exploiters. And in this case, you know, wildlife management agencies can be captured by hunters that will prioritize their benefits over all others, and specifically their benefits in the short term often. And so a way to safeguard against that is to clearly identify where the science begins and ends in wildlife management plans. And part of that is, is um, advocating that uh, wildlife management plans are clear and explicit in terms of having um, you know, the fundamental hall hallmarks of science present. That is ob objectives, uh, evidence, um, peer review, and, and others. Right. Um, to switch it a, a little, uh, <laughs> sure. um, not, not too much, just kind of switch the topic because, uh, sure. ha had how we discussed before I started recording yeah. is how I, uh, come upon your work and, uh, further was that you had, you had published a, an op-ed in, in the Globe and Mail. I, what, I have it open here. I think it was back in January. Okay. And yeah. it was in response to uh, the these flare up controversies that happen mm -hmm. that happen yeah. when someone um, doesn't recognize or purposefully spites the power of social media is kind of how I've determined <laughs> right how these right. happen. I, um, whether they're doing it to inflame or whether they just weren't thinking thinking through sure. the consequences. Um, yeah. And so this one just for the listener's sake um it was was in response to the killing of a cougar in i think it was northern alberta uh by, right. by a reasonably renowned canadian he's canadian i think he was canadian. Sure. Uh, yeah. doesn't yeah. yeah uh a reasonably renowned hunter um, sure and so you had written an op-ed uh um prompted by this uh action or prompted by the controversy perhaps um sure. but so but I think the the question that I kind of had in there, and I think we've it kind of has come through, and I don't necessarily want to out you, but it seemed, uh, but it seemed that you kind of uh, at least alluded to in a couple sentences that you are also a hunter. <laughs> I am, mm -hmm. um, and so I guess my two questions based on based on the opinion piece that I found, um, and the and that your and you as a hunter. Sure. How do you, um, I guess, I guess the first question, how did you become a hunter? Was it a, sure. has it been a lifelong thing? And then, um, similarly, does that, has, has that kind of pushed you towards where you, where you are in your research slash sure. advocacy work? Sure. Sure. Um, I found hunting rather late in life. I guess I was likely late twenties. Uh, so maybe 15 or so years ago, maybe more. Uh, I Previously, I had hunted um, by, uh, with my camera. And, okay. <laughs> and that was my relationship with, with wildlife. And many, many of the 
um, maybe motivations, and certainly the processes are actually fairly similar in terms of um, targeting something, playing the wind, you know, patience, uh, distance. You know, there's lots of things that actually um, unite wildlife photography and, and hunting. But I grew up in a family that fished but did not hunt. So okay. I, I suppose I, I, I have hunted fish since I was a little <laughs> kid. Uh, being a guy on the West Coast here um, and, you know, in essentially a, a salmon, um, salmon stronghold. Um, uh, although on my mom's side, uh, all her older brothers are hunters. And so I had a I have an uncle who was extraordinarily and remains so influential in terms of, you know, accumulating hunting knowledge. We've been on one hunt uh, together. It was kind of my my biggest hunt to date, actually, in terms of the challenges. And that was I got a what's called in BC a limited entry hunt, uh, basically a lottery ticket that allowed me to um, pursue uh, one uh, bison uh, in this herd that um, is essentially exotic. It was 30 years ago, it was released in, in northern British Columbia in the Peace region. And um, and it's, I think, got 2,000 members now. And they, they put a lottery hunt on it to uh, restrict the number of hunters. Anyways, it was a January hunt. It was... Oh, boy. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, yeah, and, and actually it was during that polar vortex that <laughs> hit North America in 2011, so we just about froze our asses off, um, but uh, uh, I ended up getting one on basically the last hour of the last day in a, in a week-long hunt, and that was really special because I, you know, I spent the whole week with, with my Uncle Frank. Um, uh, so that was one extraordinarily important influence. The other one I'll share with you it's, uh, is somewhat professional in that I've mentioned my association with the Rain Coast Conservation Foundation. And they, for years, had advocated against the trophy hunting of carnivores in, in the Great Bear Rainforest on the West Coast, further up coast from, from Victoria. And that strategy took a really interesting turn in I believe 2001 or so, where they recognized that the commercial guide outfitters, the hunting guides um, up coast, had the exclusive right to guide all the non-resident hunters. And hmm. um, those non-resident hunters are allocated about half of the wildlife, like grizzly bears, for example, under the limited entry hunt program. So Rainco's thought and strategized, well, if we can't beat these guys with our campaigning, let's just buy them out. So that's exactly what Rainco's did uh, in the early 2000s, is buy a guide outfitting territory. And to operate that territory and to, and I should say this early, to extinguish the, the trophy hunt of grizzly bears by um, um, non-residents, uh, of British Columbia, um, we had to go hunting, basically, or right. not basically. We had to we had to go hunting to fulfill uh, the letter of the law in in the Wildlife Act that governs um, hunting in British Columbia. We had to show commercial activity. So um, this was all 
kind of fun stuff, you know. Uh, <laughs> none of us at the time were hunters, uh, or I was newly coming to it at that time. But here we were faced with owning and operating a hunting guide service. So, um, so I kind of upped my game there um, in terms of learning about hunting and, and taking it a little more seriously. Um, so at times I was uh, uh, an, a, what's called an assistant guide on some of these hunts where, um, you know, despite our best efforts at finding that perfect trophy grizzly bear, um, what, did you, what would you know that, you know, um, <laughs> that perfect monster bear never came along and we have a perfectly um, preserved track record of killing exactly no grizzly bears. Um, <laughs> So that was kind of fun and, and, and you know, really influential. Um, uh, I guess the other thing that's influential, and many hunters will, will um, uh, reflect on this and, and likely feel the same, is that I've got a few friends in my life that, you know, I've known since high school and, and uh, you know, uh, love dearly as as friends and they're hunters too and and it's a really special time when when um, we get that week together in the fall to to go get a moose or two or uh, stay on Vancouver Island and and try to get some of these elusive black-tailed deer which are just ghosts of, of <laughs> these forests um, um, and that's been really important influence and and maintaining you know, my passion for hunting. And I guess the other influence is, is working in these villages. And, you know, sometimes when we're out doing field work um, with our colleagues, um, they kill deer. There's deer on these beaches. We do all our work by boat and there's deer on these beaches and pretty much every season um, our uh, colleagues in the field uh, kill a deer or two. Um, and we eat together, we share share meals. It's kind of cool because my young students or volunteers from the city down south here get exposed to, to hunting, and, and that's been kind of interesting and important. Um, I, I guess I'm a little different than other hunters, or than some other hunters, and, and it's hard to tell how exactly common this is, but a lot of hunters really want to talk a lot about hunting to non-hunters and you know, post their pictures online or go on the hunting forums to describe their hunts and and wear a lot of camo when they're not in the bush and, and stuff like that. And and I'm not one, I'm not <laughs> one of those hunters. Um, and that's okay. I mean, uh, I think I know why people do all those other things. Um, in fact, I've been interested in that as a scholar, um, you know, why men kind of behave the way, the way they do as hunters. Um, and whether it be because I, I know a little bit about why men do that, that it kind of uh, um, deters me from <laughs> behaving like that. Or I, I think, you know, rather than that, maybe that's influential, but maybe rather than that, I've just never really been um, maybe enculturated into that. Um, and I've, I've always felt that, uh, I guess, yeah, lots of discomfort in 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 showing, you know, a picture of me by a deer that I kill. 
or a moose or or whatever. Um, that's really not something I feel that I want to share with the rest of the world. Um, you know, though, like I'm sure any man, um, and this is a absolutely without a doubt a product of our evolutionary history. I feel very good when I bring home meat to my wife and family. I feel like a provider and I feel very good about doing this. Um, uh, so that's my story as as a hunter um, and someone interested in, in studying uh, human behavior and, and what I call the human predator, which includes both hunters and fishers. Right, right. Very interesting. Um, I'll, I have two questions because I'm also sure. um, I'm also cognizant of time because uh, sure, yeah. uh, I've yep. you know you're generously giving me this time sure. and I could yeah, probably talk to you forever. <laughs> sure, sure. And I, blab uh, on. I tend to blab on a lot. Oh no, yeah, that, go that, ahead, Chris. It's, I appreciate when people come on and talk without much uh, uh, instigation from me. Uh, sure. I get two. So one question and then a kind of a follow up because I uh, it'll sure. be more if uh, more about a, sure. a story. Because I think sure. storytelling is also very important in this discussion sure. as well. So the sure. first question is uh, is it's it's mainly a reflective question on um, do you think your work, your academic work, and your advocacy work, do you think it would be different if you weren't a hunter or hadn't uh, chosen to become a hunter in that way? Or like I guess uh, the other way, could you do your work without being a hunter? And I, that's a it's not. A, it's not necessarily a great yeah, question. Great question. Re- oh. No, really, really, <laughs> okay. really, really good question. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, a- absolutely. I think um, being a hunter um, perhaps makes me a better scholar of hunting and advocacy, or sorry, advocate against what I believe are are some of the impacts I'd like to avoid of, of hunting. Right. Um, so I guess I'll start with the scholarship. Um, if I, you know, to the best of my abilities, try to honestly assess what I do as a hunter, why I do it, how I do it, et cetera, um, at least I am, it's, it's a way by which I can evaluate how plausible some hypotheses might be in terms of our motivation as hunters. And it's a way to kind of independent line of evidence, albeit anecdotal and weak and perhaps highly biased because it's me, um, but I get to uh, evaluate how, through this other channel, how likely uh, this hypothesis might be that, say, comes from the evolutionary anthro- anthropology literature that explains, you know, men trophy hunt simply, or not simply, perhaps in large part to signal um, the ability of of absorbing the costs of doing so. That is to say that we hunt, um, yes, to bring home meat, but perhaps even more to signal to potential competitors and, and potential mates that we um, have the physical and cognitive abilities to do this, to bring home um, the bacon, so to speak. And so it's, uh, instead of, you know, beating the shit out of each other in terms of competition, um, we can show our physical strength and abilities 
um, in a much safer way by bringing home a big animal. And we can showcase to potential mates that, you know, we have a, a, a big brain and, and some brawn to bring home the bacon, so we must be able to offer much more in terms of of, of benefits in 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 mating. Um, and of course, when I talk about these benefits and, and this hypothesis, hypothesis I'm talking about in the subsistence world or our ancestral environments. Um, but I believe in by feeling some of these things myself as a hunter, I believe that they're still relevant today, these, these motivations. And, and, and that's why I like to ask these sort of questions in the context of, of modern hunters and, and trophy hunters in particular. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it certainly is a, it's a, it's certain in terms of a, a thinking about it too, it, it, it certainly helps ally um, when when things kind of get heated or controversies because you can yeah. kind of, because you can kind of understand um, uh, at least may, maybe not maybe not empathize but you can at least kind of understand yep. why, why someone would would react yep. angrily because yep that's yeah because it's either yep. a very that, personal or familial uh, yep. thing yep. that's being challenged rather than yeah rather that's than true. A, what seems like a a leisure activity, which in many ways the, modern hunting is a leisure activity. It kind of is. That's right. And 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 you know, hunters that that uh, are annoyed with advocacy that that criticizes some aspect of hunting are are quick often to um, just label the the critic as an anti or yeah. an anti-hunter. I don't like and that phrase it, at all. <laughs> no, and, and that's very difficult. That's very difficult for them to do that towards me. And so that op-ed you referred to, I wrote from the positionality of both a hunter and someone concerned with the impacts that hunters have on carnivores, which are, I mean, let's face it, um, largely inedible. Um, we're talking about that cougar, and yes, you'll find cougar recipes online. You'll find a recipe for you know human beings online, for God's sake. <laughs> um, but the idea that that people will hunt you know a, a top level carnivore um, to eat them, and that's their motivation is is you know no one's buying that. Um, despite you know a, a tweet that has a cougar, cougar excuse me a cougar stir fry in it, and so my my main um, message in that op-ed and it was it was targeted, pardon the pun, to, to other hunters. It was saying, guys, if we want to maintain our social license here as hunters, which in some places and times is pretty fragile. Um, we got to stop killing things that we don't eat. We got to stop, um, you know, killing carnivores for for trophies and signals of our accomplishment as men and hunters. Um, because those minority of us that do, minority of hunters that do want to kill things like grizzly bears and cougars and wolves and coyotes and and whatnot, um, they they tarnish the rest of us. They they tarnish us who want to bring home um, meat to feed our families when when these trophy hunters um, behave in ways that are meant only to feed their egos. Um, so that was the message I was I was trying to broadcast. And and 
quite frankly, yes, I got a lot of kind of hate mail, but I also got a lot of um, really strong support from um, from hunters, which was which I thought I might anyways, but I also thought I might take some shit, and you know, <laughs> of course, of course I did, um, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, none of this, none of these discussions are going to be easy, uh, especially That's when right. you're trying to. Uh, especially back to you know the discussions about the North American model and the and its right. limited history and the investments that people have put in and I mean it's, right and it's different for me too because I'm kind of similar to you like I've come to hunting through my through my research work mm, and cool. sim- and sim- and come to it later in age than even you like I only got my mm. license when I was 36. <laughs> so, wow wow cool so so there is a like so there is a uh, definitely a different approach and understanding than someone who started when they were, or at least went out with, you know, a family member when they were eight or something. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, you know, and was eagerly looking forward to the day that they could legally mm-hmm. participate. So, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, cog- I'm cognizant of that as well, because, yeah. um, because as a, you know, as in my mind, being more minded towards like how this works or doesn't work politically, mm-hmm. um, inflaming people uh is not necessary i mean it's going to happen but it, to try to mitigate that and so yeah and yeah, so yeah so you have to be aware of the things that are potentially going to inflame people because mm-hmm. and and again not mitigated in a like in a manipulative and manipulative way um but more uh, to try to be as understanding I, I i mean i haven't i haven't put my neck out there like putting it uh writing an op-ed uh but uh but I certainly understand that approach. And it, it's good to hear that you were, you know, receive some support as well, because, uh, yeah. Although the funny thing with hunters is that they're not much different than any other community of online, like an online niche group. Sure. You know, absolutely. They, yep. you know, <laughs> they're, yep. the, the sniping and the hate and the trolling is, is not yeah. is oh, not yeah, specific to them that. by any or to yeah. hunters by any stretch. So it's yeah. uh, it's yeah. kind of the it's kind of the the irony of of that of that type of uh, existence of hunting as well. But um, before I before I run on too much and babble on that, um, one of the things I'd like to do and um, and you had kind of started you when you're talking about your uh, bison hunt. And again, you don't have to share because you. Um, uh, if you don't want to, but, um, sure. is there, is there a particular story of a hunt or fishing or even when you were out photographer, uh, photographing that, uh, sticks in your mind is again, it could just be any sort of story because I, sure. and the reason yeah, I yeah. asked stories too, is because again, I think storytelling, one of the, one of the key sure. reasons why I've come to, uh, adjust my opinions on hunting is because of the various human experiences that come from it and storytelling is one of is one of the most important ones because there's sure sure uh, okay yeah yeah i've uh, one story pops into mind uh right away and it was a fairly recent one and uh and just this fabulous experience so i went on a moose hunt with close friends um a couple falls ago um called a moose in yeah, this was maybe fourth or fifth day in the hunt, and it was kind of a, you know, medium to small, you know, the small <laughs> size of medium, but much bigger than any deer, especially the black, black yeah. tails that, that I'm used to. 
um, and he came real close and had a clean shot and uh, and the animal died, you know, really, really quickly. So I was, you know, really thrilled to have um, uh, killed my first moose and that and felt the sense of relief uh, because, you know, I had increased the, the grain in my, in my, um, bullets, uh, so relieved that, you know, it did the trick. Um, it, it's a Savage 300, which is basically like a 30-30 and with a bigger grain, heavier grain, it can, uh, it can take a moose in theory and it, and it sure did in practice. So it's a tremendous sense of relief that, that he died quickly. And that was, that's only like one small part of the story, but I'll very quickly tell you the cooler part is that we were gathered beside the moose um, and preparing the the tarp and my knives and my friend's knives and, you know, uh, bags for the quarters and whatnot. And presumably because he had heard uh, our calls um, out of the forest and into the meadow we were on came this massive other moose. I mean, about twice the size of this moose. And he kept on getting closer and closer. And we were just stunned. And in fact, one of my friends was still in the bushes and, and kept on calling for him just because we were just so gobsmacked um, that he was so close. And despite, you know, another younger, smaller moose being dead on the meadow and two or three of us surrounding him on the meadow very visibly. Um, but this big moose didn't seem to care about that one bet get closer and closer. And then it got even better because a female moose came out of the other side of the meadow to come <laughs> investigate the call, presumably. And then very quickly, the, the bigger moose um, um, caught sight or perhaps scent of this cow and began to court her and follow her right in front of us. And, you know, we got to witness this, I think it's called a flamen or flamen response where, where moose and other ungulates um, kind of lift their lips up and expose their teeth. And what they're doing is ex uh, inhaling, I guess, so to speak, um, pheromone. Uh, into a specialized organ in the roof of their mouth that that you know essentially reads these these pheromones that females produce. So this is like a textbook sort of ungulate mating behavior thing that that was unfolding right in front of our eyes. Uh, it was amazing, and he was rubbing on bushes and 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 raking all over the place with his antlers and he had you know a bunch of kind of twigs and lichens and maybe willow i can't remember on his antlers and he just couldn't care less about us the female was looking at us and a little bit concerned but both of them were i don't know maybe 75 feet away from us so oh, wow. a couple of cool things you know a just to experience that was amazing um that it happened you know right beside this moose that had gone down very cleanly and, and, and hopefully compassionately, you know, just 20 minutes earlier. And, and I guess finally it was kind of um, maybe satisfying in a strange way that, that I had um, killed a, a smaller moose and this bigger sort of trophy moose um, was left to 
you know, breed another year and, and, and so on. Um, because the typical target for, for hunters is the bigger the moose, the better. Um, but that, that particular quality isn't hugely important to me. And, uh, and I also recognize some of the potential impacts that, that, you know, what we call size selective harvesting, taking only the biggest often has on, on wildlife populations. So, although part of me, of course, <laughs> wanted, you know, wished, yeah. wished I got this bigger one, kind of the, the intellectual side of me said, Hey, what just happened there, um, was, was great. You also have to pack out that bigger moose too. So <laughs> that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Not, yeah. not that yeah. it's not that, as you said, not that a small moose is actually that small when it's, you know, you're that's carrying true. its broken down parts on your you're, back. You're, <laughs> but... you're right. You're right. Fortunately, a boat was nearby uh, okay. <laughs> on, on a river, but still every step with, with a quarter on your back is, um, is is pretty grueling so yeah, yeah. well that's that, that's a an amazing story um and uh i will say thank you very much for your time and for your thoughts